Hey, and welcome to week two of our Who Am I Discipleship Module, where we are looking at how do we establish a God-centered identity in a me-centered culture. Uh, last week, Pastor Wes uh, kicked us off by looking at our identity created, how it is rooted, our identity is rooted in the God who has created us. Maybe we could think of it this way, just like a frying pan can't decide to be a pillow, right? The designer had in mind its intended use. I'm going to design features that work well for this frying pan to be a frying pan. And so its identity is rooted in its design. So that frying pan could theoretically decide, you know what? I'm tired of being a frying pan. Pillows get all the love. I'm going to start identifying as a pillow. Well, it would make for a very poor pillow because it wasn't designed to be a pillow. And probably that frying pan might end up uh, being even more distraught because no one ever picked it to be a pillow, to sleep with it because it was so uncomfortable. Our identity aligns with our design. And so God who has created us in his image has therefore given us an identity that aligns with his design for us. And when our identity and our design are in harmony, it is a beautiful thing. But sin always breaks in and disrupts that harmony between our identity and our design. This week, we are looking at identity fallen, how sin has brought confusion to our God-given identity and crafted out or carved out a space for us to try to make or create our own identities apart from our Creator. If you remember the basic structure of this class, uh, we are starting out by looking at identity created, which was last week. This week, identity fallen, and then identity redeemed and identity glorified as kind of the, the big picture of, of what makes up our identity. And then in the last two weeks, we're gonna take this framework that we've developed and applied it to very specific areas where our culture is wrestling with this in terms of sexuality and identity, race and identity, other things of this nature. So you aren't gonna wanna miss those last two weeks. So this week though, we're gonna look at how sin has affected our identity. God made humanity in Genesis 1 and 2, and in Genesis 1, we learn the purpose why he created them, and why he made them to be fruitful and to fill the earth. But then in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve start to question that purpose, and thus they also start to question their identity. This crafty serpent comes up and speaks to Eve, and it's likely that Adam was there all along. And he asks, did God really say you must not eat any from any tree in the garden? Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this the first religious question in the world. Because instead of having a conversation with God, Adam and Eve are now having a conversation about God. And notice the wording of that question. Did God actually say? It's almost as if, let's say, there was a, a famous sports coach who was known for just demanding uh, extraordinary things of his athletes, uh, almost to the, oppress, uh, to the extent of oppressing them in practice, right? Because his standards were so high and he was so demanding. And so if you had a friend on that team, you might hear some of the rumors of what that coach would make the players do during practice. And you might come to your friend and say, man, did the coach really say? And whatever it might be, right? The question is really questioning the character of the person that has demanded these things. Bonhoeffer goes on to paraphrase the heart of the serpent's question. He writes, God could have not possibly meant it in this way. I mean, God, the good creator, he would not impose such a thing upon his creature. This would be a limitation of his love. 
The serpent's question plants little seeds of doubt in Eve's mind. I mean, if God is loving, why would he put limits around what you can do? If he really cares for you, why is he restricting you so much? If you remember the biblical story, you'll know that the serpent doesn't quite get God's command correct. In fact, he makes it way more in, uh, restrictive. Eve corrects this, misstate, this misstatement by saying, no, God didn't say we can't eat of any of the trees, but just this one. Which, so she gets that right, but then she goes on to add another piece where she adds, but end, we can't even touch it, which God never said. She also makes God's commands more restrictive. Perhaps we see some of the growth of those seeds of doubt that the serpent has sown. Ron Highfield wonderfully shows the crafty nature of the serpent's question. The snake has made his point. Even if God denies you only one good thing, you possess other good things only at his pleasure. He's saying God is the one that ultimately makes the rules between what good things you can have and what good things you can't have. And think about what you're doing, he writes. You are trusting God to make your decisions about what is good and bad for you. Aren't you able to do this for yourself? Don't you know best what you need? Now the serpent responds to Eve. You'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This time Eve doesn't respond to this accusation. The serpent seems to have struck a nerve not in questioning what God has said, but in giving a reason behind why God said it. The serpent is essentially saying, God made these rules not because he wants what is best for you, but because he doesn't want to share what he has. You can imagine the questions that might run through Eve's head. Why does God want to keep this knowledge to himself? Why not share this good thing with us if he loves us? Suddenly, Eve starts to see God not as this good benefactor, but actually a competitor, one who is keeping her from realizing her full potential. Again, Highfield is helpful. Perhaps God withholds things from us, not for our own good, but to preserve a monopoly on them and to keep us down. For the first time, Eve begins to think, who can judge my interests better than I can? Now she looks at the fruit with her own eyes. And what does she see? Well, Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Let's stop right there for a sec. Suddenly she looks at this fruit and it's shinier than before, more juicy than it was just a few moments before. Her mouth is watering. But how can she tell that the fruit is desirable for gaining wisdom? It's just a piece of fruit. Well, the serpent has put a label on it. He's labeled it in such a way that she now believes this one thing is what I need in order to be fulfilled in my life. And friends, that's the same today. Our culture and people, our own minds, put so many labels on things that are labeled in such a way that tell us you need this thing if you want to be happy in this life. And yet, like that first fruit, those labels are false advertising but she doesn't know it yet, so she goes ahead and takes and eats it. The story is incredibly profound. It gets at the core of what sin is, how at its root is a desire for us to be our own God, to rule our own lives, and to be the final arbiter in deciding what we need most. And so if we doubt that God's rules are actually good for me, 
we will doubt all these other things about God. This tension is wonderfully conveyed in the Jesus story book Bible. I'm just going to read a section. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered, slithered silently up to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why, why won't he let you eat this nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, that's it, and you'll be happier than you could ever dream. Eve picked the fruit and ate some. And Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world it would never leave. It would live on every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. The fall was the first identity crisis, and it was rooted in a mistrust of God's goodness, of his love for his people. And that mistrust has been passed down to every single one of us. That's it for the first lesson. In the next two, we're going to explore some ways our identity fallen has manifested today in our me-centered world. Mm -hmm.